I would like to make two or three general statements, which at least as far as I'm aware, are found in all spiritual teachings. Naturally, expressions vary. One is that I, in fact, already mentioned that the entire universe, including you and I, are created by whatever label we attach to it, created by energy at the highest level of consciousness. And then there is a very strong suggestion that every level of existence wishes to evolve as it were to return home. Let me quote here from St. Augustine, not yesterday, many centuries ago. We are sojourners here below. Our real city is the city of God, the city to come. And in different languages, different expressions, the suggestion is that whatever level of the particle of divinity that is keeping me alive, if you like, particle of the spirit keeping me alive, that wishes to evolve, as it were, come back to the source, return home. And for that evolution to take place, it needs to undertake some action. Therefore, it takes on the body. The word body here, just for simplicity, it includes whatever we mean by the ordinary mind, etc. as well. For example, when it is said in John's Gospel that the word became flesh, there is no suggestion that it just became a hunk of meat. That would be completely stupid understanding. It clearly became the living person. So I'm using the word body here just for simplicity. But what is the implication of this? First of all, just to again use certain words. If necessary, I'll make some more comments about it. Mostly, largely, since Descartes, the words spirit and soul have become more or less equated with each other. But this is not the expression in the New Testament. Every book in the New Testament is written in Greek initially, so the word for spirit is punaima, for soul it is suke, but let us say psyche in English. And these are two different things. The soul is personal. Your soul is different from my soul. Spirit is transpersonal. It's Descartes who created a lot of confusion by just completely equating these in the 16th century. And then it also he equated spirit with soul and with the mind, therefore creating a mind-body dualism in philosophy and soul-body dualism in theology. But if we keep in mind the expression used in the New Testament and used in any other serious spiritual teaching, because if I remain wholly occupied with me, 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 my soul, 
then I can never really connect with the reality which is above myself or higher than myself. So the suggestion is that the soul wishing to evolve to the level of the spirit needs to undertake some action, therefore it takes on the body. Ordinarily people think my body has the soul, it's the other way around, it's the soul that has the body. We need to be very clear about this. Soul takes on a body and the I'm also saying, please include the mind in it. I'm just simply using the word body for simplicity. So my body and my mind is intended to be an instrument for the evolution of my soul. And in general, human beings, including myself, we get so occupied with the needs and the desires of our body and mind that we forget that this is intended to be an instrument for something else. That is the general call from all spiritual teachers to begin to realize that my existence here is not to enhance my bodily desires and needs or even my mental desires and needs, but all of this is intended to serve the needs of the soul simply because of a very general idea that spirit without the body is lame and body without the spirit is blind. So, for the evolution of the soul, we need to undertake certain right kind of action. That is the basic, why the soul has taken on the body. And here, let me actually remind you, this is a remark in fact, initially from Plato, but Plotinus develops this very much, that our soul is amphibious in nature. It can sink completely into matter, or it can soar into the one. Which is to say that the soul has this possibility of this whole range of existence. It can completely degenerate or sink it, or it can soar into the one. He uses the expression one for God. The reason I'm mentioning this is because if we just end up thinking that soul is the same as spirit, that none of these remarks would make much sense then. Soul is not the same as spirit, and I hope I have tried to say it. soul is individual, it's personal, Spirit is transpersonal. And the call from any serious spiritual teaching is how can I be a little bit free of my advancement, my going to heaven, or my pleasing God even. If you read any of our, the great mystics in, in any tradition, very much a strong suggestion towards receptivity rather than imposing my will, my ideas on anything that I undertake in spiritual practice. So these are some of the general, quite universal ideas. And uh, I, in a way, intentionally, given the background of the people here to whom I'm speaking, I would probably more end up referring to the Judeo-Christian texts. But you can find exactly similar remarks 
Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism. But naturally the language shifts. For example, it's rather unusual to use the word God in the male sense in the Indian tradition. I never heard anybody in India refer to God as father. Here it would be a very common thing to say. One could quite often hear God as a mother, but not God as father. It would seem very odd in the Indian context. So don't get stuck with the expression. It's much more important to realize what they are trying to point to, what they are hinting at. For example, the expression of Christ, the Father and I are one, would seem very odd to any serious mystic in India. They are much more likely to say, as was actually said even by Maharishi Raman or by classical great sages in India, that I am Brahma or my deepest self is identically the same as Brahma. But to use expression like father and I are one would seem very strange to them. But we don't need to get stuck on any of this. If one is seriously trying to understand any other tradition, it is important to be a little free of one's own tradition so that one can in fact appreciate something. Every expression is pointing to something. And let me make this, I hope you take this seriously, this remark. Expression of truth is not the truth. I could say, for example, I could imitate Christ's remark. That doesn't make it true. All our philosophers and theologians are arguing about this expression, that expression, but that is hardly the truth. And Aldous Huxley wrote a whole book called The Perennial Philosophy, but it is rather interesting. He hardly quotes any philosophers. He quotes only those people who actually directly experience something. So a great deal of mystics are quoted there from Christianity, from Islam, from Hinduism, but hardly any philosophers. Because this is another idea, maybe I should take a moment here to say this is also universal in all the spiritual teaching. In fact, almost the very meaning of the word spiritual is a level of reality which is subtler than the mind. But that spiritual realm itself is very large, so that if sometimes one has one extraordinary experience, it doesn't mean that now I have the highest spiritual experience, which is sometimes very tempting to people. Just to remind you, in the Bible we have nine orders of angels. They're all spiritual, but they're referring to different levels. So the spiritual domain is extremely large domain, but the suggestion is that this domain cannot be figured out by the mind. So a very strong suggestion by all the mystics, including the mystics in Christianity, although they have usually been set aside by the churches for one reason or the other, but very strong suggestion that the mind, the ordinary mind, needs to be silenced or quieted. Because the mind is not the real knower. Just as a microscope is not the real knower, but we can have a bad microscope or a good microscope. So since the title for this evening is about yoga as the science of transformation, I would keep returning to classical texts of yoga, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras or the Bhagavad Gita. These are the two classical texts of yoga. 
So almost the first substantive sutra, which would be like a first substantive verse in the Yoga Sutras, is to stop all the movements of the mind. Some of you, if you know the original version of this, yoga chitta vritti nirodha. Yoga is stopping all the movements of the mind. Right away one sees. Then the very next sutra is, then the real seer resides in his true form. The expression even shifts from knower to seer because the kind of knowledge that one is speaking about is something by direct perception, not by quoting one scripture or the other, or by induction or by deduction. Explicitly the suggestion that the sort of knowledge which is aimed at is something by direct perception. Not what I read, but what I see. We have a classical remark of this in the Gospels. Christ spoke as one with authority, not as the scribes do. This is a direct quote from the Gospel. So we don't need to be so much what the scribes say. It's fine. We don't need to be against that. They can even sometimes assist something. But what is much more important is what is it that I actually see or experience. Even in this quiet sitting I mentioned, the mind does not experience. But that doesn't mean that the mind is irrelevant. For example, just let me take the scientific example. All the measurements in science are done by one form or the other of externalized sense. How high the temp thermometer is or which way the electrons are moving. This is all done by one form or the other of external sensing. In the spiritual dimension, it's always internalized sensing. For example, I can even close my eyes and I see, I can say, I see what is going on inside me. And we have remarks of one particularly great sage in India. He said, even the subtlest spiritual experience is a sensation in the body. But mind can then, let us say in the scientific realm, can look at several different measurements and can even suggest what theory will explain most of these measurements. Or even suggest a change. If you change one parameter, will it lead to different measurements? So no need to be against the mind. As I said earlier, mind can be, we can like a microscope, we can have a good microscope or a bad microscope. So we can have a good mind or a bad mind, but the microscope is not the knower. The scientist knows through the microscope. We have a wonderful expression of William Blake, actually. One sees not with the mind, but through the mind. So, very strong suggestion in any serious mystical teaching that the mind needs to be, the ordinary mind needs to be quieter. The trouble with the word mind is sometimes people use it for different levels of the mind. The word mind gets used, for example, for the monkey mind as well as for the Buddha mind, the word mind gets used. 
So therefore, one needs to be a little careful what quality of mind one is speaking about. So one, we don't need to be necessarily against the word mind, which is why, in, for example, in Greek, in the New Testament, or in the Bhagavad Gita, different words are required or different words are used. Ordinary mind, for example, in the Bhagavad Gita is manas. A slightly higher mind is buddhi, same root as the word Buddha. Because the higher mind, or sometimes, for example, to use Krishnamurti's expression, intelligence beyond thought. But it is still intelligence, but it's a little beyond thought. It has both an individual quality as well as a cosmic quality to it. Let me give a specific example. I'm sure this is true here also. Sometimes you're driving, you see a sign saying, a nice lookout. So if you stop at this nice lookout, you can see the wonderful scenery on the other side. You're still on this side, but from there, you're aware of the wonderful scenery on the other side. So buddhi, or higher mind, is able to see the grand scenery subtler than itself. But it is still personal, still individual, it's on this side. So it has both a cosmological as well as a psychological aspects to this. It can therefore become the connecting link between two different levels, whereas the lower mind is more or less always justifies whatever the body actually wants. Sooner or later it will, it's almost like a prostitute, whatever <laughs> it will justify it sooner or later. So when it is said that all the movements of the mind need to be stopped, one needs to be clear what kind of mind we are speaking about here. The word is used quite vaguely in the language. For example, these days it has become very fashionable to speak about mindfulness or mindful meditation. Actually, one of the great Upanishads actually says the highest state is mindlessness, freedom from the mind. But the word now, mindlessness, would seem like as if I'm really dumb. So be a little careful about the language. But let me return nevertheless to what is it. As far as I know, if there is one single common lesson of all the scriptures and the teachings of all the sages, it is this. As long as I remain the way I am, I cannot come to the truth or to God or to whatever other label you wish to put on it or to the real or to the absolute. Various words get used. Because each one of them is suggesting, recommending a very radical transformation of the whole of my being. And any spiritual teaching is really a science of transformation. Otherwise, it is just simply asking you to believe something or the other, not to really undertake any particular practice. Sadly, at least this is my impression, I see this in India, in Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, everywhere. The churches, etc., are really not interested in any spiritual transformation. They wish you to believe something or the other rather than to search for something. I hope I'm wrong, but this is my sad impression from what I notice. Whereas, and whatever is actually insisting on search sometimes gets excommunicated, for example, Meister Eckhart, or 
gets declared as non-canonical. For example, we have many so-called Gnostic Gospels, which are very much insisting on transformation. For example, one remark from the Gospel of Philip, obviously non-canonical, Christ came not to make us Christian, but to make us Christ. Very similar to the remark of the Buddha, look within, you are the Buddha. But this kind of remark, as you see, it becomes non-canonical very quickly. There are many other things like this, but um, this is not meant to be an advertisement, but I'm going to be giving a set of four webinars called the Transformational Teachings of Christ. Last two Saturdays in November, first two Saturdays in December, if you go on my website, which is simply ravindra.ca, not .com, CA stands for Canada, ravindra.ca, there you can see the details of this. I invite you, because I feel more and more that many of my nominally Christian friends are just completely convinced that Christianity has been ruined by the churches, etc., which may be true or may not be true, but I am much more interested in the real spiritual teachings of all the great sages. This is a planetary culture. We don't need to imagine that we have exclusive right to the truth. Does India have a monopoly on truth anymore or than Christianity has or Islam has? There are great sages everywhere. In fact, this is a, in every culture at every time, some people, but unfortunately it's always very few people who are really interested in, in the truth, in reality. You can look at yourself, your, how much time do you spend on this, or your neighbors, your relatives. Extremely few people actually really devote their lives to this. And then among them, as Christ even said, many are called, few are chosen. Krishna makes exactly similar remark in the Bhagavad Gita. So a few, very few, in fact, come to some real understanding, and then naturally people around them say, this person can't be an ordinary man. He has to be half God, half man, or the son of God, or God incarnated, or something, just simply because it's extraordinary. But to imagine that only this happens in one culture or at one period of history, is really to defy the whole human search. So I invite you to be a little free of that kind of sectarianism. Wisdom exists in every culture. This is the very meaning of somebody being called a sage or a rishi. The Sanskrit word would be rishi. And so it is with that perspective coming from India, I'm very struck by absolutely remarkable teachings of Christ, transformational teachings of Christ. But none of my Christian friends, most of my friends are nominally Christian. They are always surprised by when I point out what Christ actually said. And somehow, this is not what they think he either said or they haven't heard this, which surprises me. But there we are. In any case, let me return to this general remark I just made, which as far as I know, every serious teaching says that a radical transformation of the whole of myself is required, including my body and the mind and the feeling. Because every impression that we receive actually has effect on our body at a cellular level. Our difficulty is that we are subjected to contrary impressions, 
So basically things just more or less remain the way they are. But otherwise, just imagine yourself. If you have had, let us say, even five minutes of some absolutely extraordinary piece of music you heard, it touched you deeply. Do you think that's the end after five minutes? It actually, in fact, changes something in the body. The tragedy is then we go outside and there is all kinds of noise going on in the traffic, etc. So it's gradually washing any influence that takes on the body. Which is the reason why we have more and more trouble in every culture everywhere now. Because what our kids are being subjected to, the sort of impression, the kind of music, the kind of films, etc. It's not very heartening. But so let me take a moment here to say, or really to give you scriptural references for this remark. All of you know the third chapter in the Gospel of John. Nicodemus, who is a member of the Jewish council, but the council is beginning to be a little concerned about Christ. Uh, ultimately, that's the council which, by the way, condemned him to be crucified. But not everybody in that council. It actually was a majority decision. In fact, just to remind you, it was two members of that council who took care of the body of Christ after his death. In fact, his own disciples are not even to be found anywhere. It's Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. These are the two. They were members of the council, Jewish council, which took care of his body after his death. So he comes in the middle of the night. I occasionally say it's a little bit like a cardinal in the Vatican going to the Dalai Lama for spiritual counsel. He has to sneak out. <laughs> Otherwise, it would look a little undesirable. So Nicodemus actually comes in the middle of the night to see Christ. And the very first thing he asks is, how may I enter the kingdom of heaven? I'm sure you all know this response of Christ. That such a radical transformation is required that it's like being born again. Born of the spirit, born from above. It's important to emphasize here, this is actually to be found in all the teachings that I, at least I know. Obviously each one of us is born of the flesh, this is obvious. But very strong suggestion that we can be and need to be born of the spirit. This is the, really like the second birth, if you like. And what does that primarily require? A little freedom from my usual self. Now here is the remark of Christ. This is in the Gospel of Matthew. Unless you leave yourself behind, you cannot be a follower of mine. So what is this self that needs to be left behind? This is all our conditioned self. Each one of us, including me, we are conditioned by our culture, even by the language that we speak, the music that we grow up hearing, food that we eat. In fact, I'm always a little surprised when I'm not feeling well, the kind of food I like to eat to comfort me is quite different from my partner who grew up in Canada. The kind of food she needs when she's not feeling well is quite different. So we are totally conditioned by all of this. Music, language, religion, sculpture, art, everything conditions us. And 
in order to come to a realm where one can be a little free of this conditioned self. This is the call from Christ. I just quoted to you from the Gospel of Matthew. So, a very radical transformation of the whole of our being is required. And sometimes this is expressed in a slightly more strident language, actually even by Christ. Unless you die to yourself, unless you die to the world, is another way. These are expressions, you can find them all in the Gospels. So, but this almost is slightly easier for us to understand. Unless you leave yourself behind, you cannot be a follower of mine. So what it requires, first of all, a very impartial and steady self-inquiry. What is this self that I need to leave behind? When I meet somebody, Supposing I wish to talk to her, is it only as an Indian to an English person, or a male to a female, or a Hindu to a Christian? Can it ever really be a person to person? What would it mean to have a conversation person to person, not wholly conditioned by my cultural background, by my language background, etc.? So, to leave oneself behind really, first of all, requires for me to really understand how my attitudes are conditioned by my own background. So self-study or self-inquiry, there are other words, self-knowledge, self-observation, is a fundamental requirement. And certainly in Patanjali Yoga Sutra, the word which is used in Sanskrit is swadhyaya, literally meaning self-study. And this is a fundamental requirement for anybody to undertake any kind of transformation. And then one begins to see in oneself that myself, whatever I understand by this self, actually has many levels can be wholly self-centered, selfish, self-occupied. Like you guys may be more angelic. I can certainly see this in myself. <laughs> and then occasionally, I'm surprised even by myself, actually, that to undertake something or to say something or to do something, which is, in fact, quite selfless. So what do these expressions mean? that within this so-called self, there are many different levels. And the requirement or the recommendation is for me to be increasingly more and more free of my usual self, my ordinary self, which is of necessity occupied with me, me, me. What do I get out of this? How do I get ahead? And let me take a few moments here to actually give a specific example of this. No sage, you can read, not everybody describes their 
mystical experiences or how they came to it or what they experienced. But whenever anybody has bothered to describe them, and you can certainly see this in the case of Christ and in the case of the Buddha, that no sage can come to any real understanding or can come to God or enlightenment, whatever expression we wish to use, without being tested by the devil. So first of all, I recommend to you not to be against the devil because he'll fail you if you become against the devil. The devil is also son of God. I invite you to actually the book of Job twice in the first chapter. This is the seventh verse in the first chapter and the first verse in the second chapter says the following. When all the sons of God were gathered together, among them was Satan. He's also a son of God. He didn't create himself. He's also created by God. And what is his function? Especially in the book of Job, it's very explicit. God actually asks him to go test Job, who claims to be a great devotee of God. And as I said, and I'm making this as a general remark, nobody can come to God or enlightenment without being tested by the devil. And in the case of the Buddha, the word that is used there is Mara. This is the Buddhist word for the devil. The reason I am even mentioning this is because, after all, Mara is testing him because all the human temptations and fears are exactly the what, what he uses. What is the first one? More and more enhancement of bodily pleasures. So he sends his own three daughters to seduce the Buddha. I should say Buddha to be. He's not yet the Buddha. Buddha simply means the one who is awakened. He's not yet awakened, but he's sitting in great meditation under the Bodhi tree. So Mara tests him, and the first test is freedom. Is he free from total occupation with the bodily desires? But I invite us, if we are serious searchers, we need to, all the scriptures are fine, teachings are fine, but we need to really ask again and again, how does it apply to me? Am I actually free of this? How does one become free of this? First of all, actually recognizing what is it that drives one's whole life. So in this case, the, as I said, the Mara sends his three daughters to seduce him. When that doesn't work, so then he says, I will turn this mountain into a mountain of gold. Wealth. Now, I don't know about you people here. In my case, I think a million pounds could get me to do whatever. Gold, mountain of gold. Maybe you are all free of all this. Hmm? No, this is why all these teachings are wonderful, but how does it apply to me? One needs to really repeatedly ask this question, otherwise, one is not a serious searcher as far as I'm concerned. And so that doesn't work. Then what he says, I'll give you sovereignty over the whole world. Power. Power, wealth, pleasure. Is there anybody among us who is free of these? And then the other side is fear. So he sends his whole army to try to kill him. Fear of death is ultimately, I suppose, the greatest fear. So the reason I'm saying all this is really when it is said by Christ that I need to leave myself behind, Impartial self-study is absolutely essential feature of any kind of a serious teaching. 
And I find it really quite sad in a way. You can look at the concordance of the whole Bible, hundreds of entries under faith or belief, and some entries under knowledge, not a single entry under self-knowledge. But you read any of the mystics saying anything about the teaching, or even the so-called non-canonical gospels, constantly emphasizing the requirement for self-knowledge. Let me take a moment here to actually quote to you. This is the Gospel of Thomas, obviously non-canonical. The kingdom of God is within you and without you. If you would know God, you must know yourself. When you know yourself, you will realize that you are the son of the living father. If you do not know yourself, you are in poverty. In fact, you are poverty. I actually personally don't know a stronger statement almost anywhere else. So much emphasis on impartial self-inquiry. But this kind of thing doesn't appeal to me, as you can easily see. So, but in any case, this is a fundamental requirement. But this is a very dangerous undertaking, partly because All the things that the devil tries to point out in the Christ or in the Buddha also apply to us. And we have this remark of Rumi, if you have not yet seen the devil, go look in the mirror. <laughs> what is the devil? Ultimately, as I just finished, you know, it's all fine to just put the devil away. We have nothing to do with the devil, but the devil exactly Fear and desire, that is the very fundamental aspects of whatever the devil is trying to bring to us or test us about. One kind of desire or the other, for pleasure, for wealth, for power, or fear. And so Rumi's remark, but before it can become, actually the remark of the Buddha is a little bit more comforting. So let me quote this. He says, in this very body you can discover all the demons and all the gods. So there is the other side also. It's not only just the demonic side. And the reason for emphasizing this is that one needs to actually know what is it that I need to be free of. Otherwise it's very nice to quote Christ and then just go and have another beer. That doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't assist the whole spiritual development. But if I begin to actually see how much one is driven by jealousy or competitiveness or by fear or desiring this or that, me, 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 that seems to be the fundamental issue with everybody. So how does one become free of this? So in the Yoga Sutras, actually, he, the Patanjali is the putative author. By the way, no scholar would seriously agree that Patanjali is actually the author of the Yoga Sutra, but that's the name that gets attached to it. And in any case, he speaks about what is the purpose of yoga. Let me just quickly use two Sanskrit words, but I will try to translate them immediately. He says the purpose of yoga is to cultivate samadhi and to diminish the kleshas. 
Klesha means hindrance, what stands in the way. So naturally, to cultivate whatever the aim is, to cultivate that one needs to be diminishing what stands in the way, what are the obstacles. So that's easier. But the reason I'm mentioning this word is, what are the obstacles? He speaks about this in length. And samadhi, what is samadhi? Here is the definition of samadhi given by Patanjali. To take the transient, sorry, samadhi's definition is when the self is not. Exactly what Christ is recommending that we need to be free of. When the self is not. And whatever one sees, only the purely the object remains. Some of you, if you are familiar with the great philosopher Immanuel Kant, his great text called The Critique of Pure Reason, his major, if you like, commentary that the scientific knowledge can never be completely objective, it is based exactly on this, namely that the object gives something, but our mind introduces something. So it is therefore colored by our mind. And the glory of scientific knowledge is that it is intersubjective, not necessarily objective, but intersubjective. That different subjects using the same instruments or the same data can come to the same conclusion. And whereas in the spiritual teachings, the wish is to be completely objective, which may seem rather strange, but that's exactly what it is. But objective in the sense that the knower is actually out of the way. So it's just as Patanjali describing this here, that the self is not. And whatever the object is, it purely reveals itself. But then, what are the obstacles that stand in the way? In the whole of the Indian tradition, this is not only in the Yoga Sutras, absolutely anybody, even contemporary sages like Aurobindo or Krishnamurti or Raman, and all the classical sages, for example, even in the Bhagavad Gita, everywhere, the major obstacle in the whole of the Indian tradition is avidya, which literally means ignorance. Therefore, naturally, this solution is knowledge. But to be clear, it's not the kind of knowledge that we, by deduction or by induction or by reading the scriptures or the testimony of the sages, it's by direct perception. And then it is said that this kind of knowledge frees one from the time sequence classical example of this is Christ saying, before Abraham was, I am. Now here is a knowledge which is free of time sequence. But sadly, in that very, this is in the Gospel of John, this remark, the very next sentence is, then the crowd picks up stones to throw at him, to kill him. You see? Because this doesn't make sense to people, to say before Abraham was, I am. But this is the kind of knowledge these texts are speaking about. A direct perception, freedom from oneself, and also free from the time sequence. 
And then, what are the things that stand in the way? First of all, I don't need to bother you with Sanskrit expressions, although really to translate them is not so easy, because each, every translation is a kind of a transcreation. It so much depends, because not every language is exactly the same one, so there is not one word translation for one. It's not only the problem with English, it's also true reverse order as well. If we have, if Shakespeare is being translated, let us say, into Hindi, same problem arises there. And it's not so easy. Translations are always transcreations, depending on the person's own background and one's own hang-up and one's own desire and wishes. But the first one is, in Sanskrit, the word is asmita. It's like a separate self, that I'm separated from the whole ocean of being. And the idea is that the separate self is by nature a separating self. It's like there is the whole ocean of being and I'm identifying myself with one drop of it. I am that. And then it naturally separates me from all the other drops. Because one aspect of any serious mystical realization is the awareness of the oneness of whole being, that everybody arises from the same source. And there is, this is where then naturally a sense of compassion and love naturally arises, because one realizes the commonality of all our beings. So this is the first obstacle. The other one is like and dislike. One needs to do whatever needs to be done, whether I like it or I don't like it. Sometimes it is expressed in a slightly different terminology. For example, the terminology used by Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion. If it is possible, let this cup pass me by. But not my will, but thine be done. So whatever needs to be done has to be done. doesn't matter whether, but as far as he's personally concerned, he'd rather not get into this, right? Quite understandably. If it is possible, let this cup pass me by. Hmm? So freedom from like and dislike, but it actually has, Patanjali goes into more depth here, that Sanskrit word is a ragatvesh, but we don't need to worry about it. That Liking something comes from attachment to pleasure. We wish to repeat it. And disliking something, he says, is rather weird. It comes from attachment to suffering, which seems very strange. But it's actually, I invite you to think about it, that our body and mind is in fact more attached to suffering than it is attached to happiness. This may seem very peculiar, but the whole profession of psychotherapy and psychiatry exists because suffering lodges into our body and to our mind much more. In a very simple way, if somebody says to me at breakfast, oh, what you said was very nice, I'm happy to sit with them at lunch. But if somebody said, oh, son of a bitch, that was a terrible thing, then I wish to avoid them but I remember their name longer. Hmm? 
you guys may be more angelic, but I am inviting you to actually watch what takes place. We are more attached to suffering. In fact, Gurdjieff actually, this is a contemporary teacher, some of you may know his name. He actually says that a man will give up anything, but will not give up his suffering. Nations get attached to it. If they have lost a battle, they keep coming back to this in one way or the other. And in fact, it is so strongly a part of our being that Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, when he's more or less describing yoga in varieties of ways, one description he gives is yoga is breaking the bond with suffering. That it requires a whole very serious undertaking to break that bond with suffering. We are very much attached to suffering more than anything else. But the other one is that I come back to what Patanjali's description of what stands in our way. What stands in our way, he says, is addiction to the status quo. Because whatever I now am is the end result of my entire cultural, social, paternal background. And all those forces wish to keep me there. And generally, we have a tendency to say that this is because we have a fear of the unknown. Any radical shift or a radical change will lead to fear of the unknown. Which is rather peculiar, because I remember once a little conversation with Krishnamurti, and somebody mentioned this. I don't think he would use that kind of expression in public, but in this small group, he says, damn it, sir. If it is unknown, it is unknown. How can it create fear or anything else? The trouble is attachment to the known. So we need to be a little careful here. The problem is not with the unknown. It's that we wish to keep repeating or remaining what we know. And afraid of losing the known. And then we keep saying it's the fear of the unknown. Actually, maybe I'll take a moment here. My time is getting a little limited, but I will quickly. This is the last dialogue of Plato, Phaedo. He's, Socrates has been condemned to drink hemlock, just because any good guy is not acceptable in the society anyway. So, <laughs> so he has to be. He has to die drinking the hemlock. So some of his disciples are gathered, quite understandably, it's a human tendency. Some of them are crying. So he says to them, you are behaving as if you know what happens after death. Furthermore, as if you know that what happens after death is worse than what happens before death. As for myself, I regard this to be one of the classical expressions in all philosophy. He says, as for myself, since I do not know, therefore I am free. This is the expression. This is in the last dialogue of Plato, Phaedo. This is quoting Socrates. Since I do not know, therefore I am free. And then maybe just to continue this, one of his disciples says, Socrates, where should we bury you? He says, you can bury me anywhere you like, if you can find me. Is Socrates the body? Or is Socrates something else? 
So this remark of Socrates, you can bury me wherever you like if you can find me. So this notion of addiction to the status quo is very strong. In physics, this is the first law of motion of Newton, by the way, law of inertia, that whatever state the matter is in, it continues to be in that state, unless there is an externally imposed force. Maybe some of you have scientific background, or even in high school, one reads the Newton's laws of motion. This is the first law of motion of Newton. But here, Patanjali is speaking psychologically, not in terms of material movement. So then, these are the obstacles or the hindrances that stand in the way. And any undertaking of transformation requires seeing how do these factors affect me? And how can I actually be more and more free of them? To imagine that all I need to do is just read the scriptures when I'm free is a good idea, but this will never happen, <laughs> I can assure you. Impartial, steady self-study, self-inquiry is a fundamental requirement. And then undertaking the corresponding practices, whatever is required. My time is limited, so I'm going to stop now here. The suggestion was that I should stop before 8 o'clock so we can have something to drink or eat. Is that the idea? But please come back after, what, 15 minutes or 20 minutes? We'll have 20 minutes, right. Yes. Mm -hmm. And don't simply buy anything that I'm saying, because if you're a serious searcher, don't believe something. You need to question to see how it actually applies to you. And I'm also, people call it question-answer. I prefer the word exchange. You don't need to be asking me questions. Really, if you have any serious question, let me assure you nobody else can answer it other than yourself. Serious questions lead to our quest, spiritual quest. Informational questions are easier. I can, those are easier to answer. But, so I prefer the word exchange. You may have a different perspective. You may quite happily feel free to say what I have said is just nonsense. Mm -hmm. If it is nonsense from your perspective, don't say it just to be, just to be clever. But if you really feel it is nonsense, I'll be happy to hear this. Because I'm not committed to remain in error because it is my error. I'm happy to be reformed. <laughs> so please, let's have a break and we'll come back in about 20 minutes. If we look at any of the really, truly great sages, and I always think at least two examples we can always keep in mind, namely the Buddha and Christ. Nobody would disagree that they were very great sages. What we find there is more and more freedom from me, me, me which then manifests itself in being feeling a sense of relationship with the other, or in fact, even oneness with the others, which then manifests in terms of compassion, love. Every commandment of Christ has the word love in it, which is extraordinary. There is no other religious literature which has that much emphasis on that. And about the Buddha, we always use the word compassion attached with it. In fact, if I were to say that the Buddha was enlightened, but he was not compassionate, it will be an oxymoron. Hmm? And 
so one needs to realize. So this notion of soul being individual, being personal, so whenever one actually has an experience of a little freedom from myself, that is already an experience closer to the spiritual realm. I don't need to necessarily attach the word spirit to it, if you like, if that makes you un uneasy, but a level a little freer of my personal occupation. But in order to express anything, some language is needed, some words are needed. In fact, these days, in the academic circles, there is an increasing interest in consciousness, but they don't like to use the word spirit or soul. They just talk in terms of levels of consciousness. I should make another slightly general remark. I'm, you don't just buy what I'm saying, but you can look at it. I have almost never seen any paper published or anything in a conference said by any Western scholar who ever quotes anything from the Bible or from the remarks of St. Paul or Christ. I seem to be the only academic scholar who keeps quoting from the Bible, which surprises people. But they would happily quote from the Bhagavad Gita or the Yoga Sutra. Sometimes my impression is that the Western academics are so fed up with the churches that they just think if they quoted it as if they would be labeled something or the other. I'm in fact often in these various conferences trying to remind them that there is enormous wisdom in many remarks of Christ and many remarks of St. Paul. Of course, not everything speaks to us at the same level. That is true for everything or everybody. But if you know any exception to what I'm saying, I'll be happy to learn. Most Western academics, at least as far as I know, never seem to refer to anything said by Christ or by me. This is tragic, which partly means a kind of a great disillusionment with the whole tradition, practically. So if you know some exceptions, please help me to learn. <laughs> but however, does that at least speak to your question? Whenever one can feel a little different level, but actually, by the way, feeling, another thing I should say here, the so-called age of enlightenment, this is just about the wrongest label one should have could have attached to this. Because what it ended up doing, that only the mind can lead to truth. And even they are only the scientific, quantitatively oriented mind. So music, poetry, sculpture, art, none of this can lead to truth. They may be entertaining or amusing, but they don't lead to truth. This is the implication. And in the process, it is in a way necessary to remove the ordinary feelings that one has, ordinary emotion like jealousy, competitiveness, anxiety, worry. But Subtler feelings are actually avenue to truth. In fact, if you read the, not every great scientist describes how they came to their theory, but those who have occasionally described, like Newton and Einstein, they actually say they came to this through their intuition, primarily. And here is a remark of Pascal, also not a negligible scientist. He said, heart has reasons that reason does not know. So don't, 
don't dismiss something that touches your heart. But it's a question of the level of the touch, or the level of the heart where it touches, because it is also true that there are many levels of our feeling. Anxiety, worry, etc. is also emotion. But for example, already I mentioned earlier, if my emotional energy is not connected with slightly subtler feeling, such as a sense of wonder, or a sense of gratitude, then it will be automatically wasted in anxiety, etc. So here I am already giving you examples of different levels of feeling. But then having said that now here, again, if we were seriously searching something and looking at ourselves, if you look at last one week, how many moments you would honestly say you had a sense of wonder or a sense of gratitude? Whereas I personally have met some quite remarkable people. Krishnamurti was one example of this. Among the great scientists, Iraq was an example, on whose face practically wonder was written on their faces. Everything was wonderful. But here I am inviting you to be impartially self-observant we can admire something, but our life is not allowing us to be in that state of wonder or the state of delight or a state of love. I don't mean just sexual orientation of love. That's <laughs> just a quick reminder to you. This is the first letter of John. God is love. He's not saying God is loving, that will be much easier to understand, but that the very structure of whatever we mean by God is love. And in India, one of the characteristics of the ultimate reality is anand, which would be delight. Consciously, you probably have come across this word sat, chit, anand. Truth, consciousness and delight. These are the very characteristic of the highest reality. And in the New Testament, love is the expression that is used. So, if and when we connect with these, then we are already connecting with something a little subtler. But sadly, and this is the reason I'm inviting you, look at the last one week in your own life. How many moments did you have of any of these great feelings? That doesn't mean that I'm trying to belittle you. Maybe you were wonderfully struck by all of this. I mean, I'm just. As I keep saying, you may be more angelic than I am. I'm really more or less reporting what I see in myself. So much occupation were not missing my flight or <laughs> catching the right bus. All that seems to take over most of my energies. Atma, by the way, is better translated as self. Then it has many different levels. As I mentioned earlier, it can be wholly self-occupied or it can be selfless. And in that context, let me actually take the corresponding Greek word. The reason I'm taking that, because the whole, every book in the New Testament is written in Greek. And so when we read, for example, the great comments of Christ, such as, I am the way, the truth, and the life, they all begin with the word ego, which has now been diminished into egocentricism completely. All of those words begin with ego, amy, I am. And so, ego is atma, but then one forgets different levels of it. Ego has been reduced completely and atma in India has been elevated. 
as if this is the highest level of one's being. Let me here give you, <coughs> this is an illustration actually from the oldest Upanishad. Indra, who is said to be the chief of the gods or devas, and Verojana, who is the chief of the demons. They both have, by the way, in India, all mythological stories, they are not never us and them. It's us one and us two. They are always family members or cousins or uncles or have the same father, almost always. So it's, it's really an internal difficulty. It's not talking about other difficulties outside. But in any case, both of these characters go to study with the same great teacher. And the question is, what is Atma? So the teacher says, you go look at this lake. What you see there, that is Atma. So they see their image in the lake, reflection. So Verochana is happy. This is the answer. Indra, after a little while, is, says, what happens at night? Or if there is a storm, what is Atma? So he returns again. And <clears throat> by the way, I should have maybe said this earlier. Before, this is a classical Indian idea. Before they are allowed to ask any serious questions, for 12 years they have to attend to the cows and the take care of it. I think we should introduce that idea. <laughs> but in any case, so Idra comes back again for 12 years, he's working on something or the other. Then he, so then he, the teacher says, Atma is what you think. And so temporarily Indra is satisfied, but then again he begins to raise questions because his thinking keeps changing. Then he, what you feel, so it goes again and again and again. Finally, he says, Atma cannot be described. <laughs> it always remains a mystery beyond all this. So the word Atma, now I know what has happened generally in the mass level. And then, of course, people keep using it in the books as well, as if Atma refers to the highest level. No, it can, Atma simply means the self. So it depends on where you identify it with. Maybe I should take him, if you don't mind, a little side remarks, if you will. In India, strictly speaking, there is not a creation myth. What we have there is really emanation myth. The word that is used, you may call it God if you like, but the word that is used is Brahma for the highest reality. And it literally means the vastness or the endlessness. And because the contemporary English words like vastness does not include the sense of time, so sometimes it also gets translated as the eternal. But the idea is to indicate unlimitedness, endlessness. So then this Brahma did not create the world, it became the world. So everything that exists, has Brahma in it. So, and even gentrification, to call it masculine or feminine, doesn't make sense. So one uses the word it, but it, in our usual English usage, means something that has not yet developed the gender. In Sanskrit, there are two qualities of it. It that has not yet degenerated into a gender. It's not limited by gender. 
You see the point I'm trying to make? So then the classical actually example that is given is that just as the spider web oozes out of the spider, the substance of the spider, but then the spider can move anywhere on the web or even away from the web. So Brahma is therefore not confined to the manifested universe, but the manifested universe <laughs> cannot exist except that it, everything in it, even the mosquitoes or even this table and chair, everything has Brahma in it. So now, coming back to your question, this was just a part of the background of this. And therefore, within ourselves, it is possible to find that level or that quality that is vastness or endlessness. Then one would say, I am Brahma. Only the very great sages can say this. Anybody can use the words. That doesn't make it true. The question is, does there, then we say, do they demonstrate this in their behavior, in their attitude? If Christ says, the Father and I are one, anybody could say that. Hitler could say that. But does it demonstrate in his life? And that demonstration then requires his feeling of service, feeling of humility, feeling of oneness with the others. You see, all of those are a feeling of more and more awareness. So one can actually, one doesn't need to just simply just buy the idea that somebody says, I am God. Question is, does it manifest in their life? How do I understand resurrection? Well, <laughs> uh, this is actually also a little bit connected with the question that was earlier raised here too, that why should we assume, first of all, maybe even prior to that, I should make, actually, if there is one common kind of statement in all religions, as far as I know, this is not necessarily coming from any great mystics or anything, but all religions would say that the death of the body is not the death of the person. Which is to say, as if the person is something other than the body, right? So, resurrection then, from that perspective, is really to, in fact, be able to relate with that level that is said to be true in everybody, the spiritual level, in fact, this might interest you or amuse you. This is a remark in the Gospel of, I think, Gospel of Philip. Christ resurrected before he died. If one is not resurrected before one's death, there is no possibility of resurrection. You see, resurrection there basically means to relate with the spiritual realm. But coming back to the question you were raising about anatma in Buddhism, because I slightly moved away from that, that there basically is really very much the emphasis that our usual self, that whatever we call self, atma at that level, is 
very transient. It's constantly changing. Actually, in the Western philosophy, some of you may be aware of Hume, great philosopher Hume, very much came to this very conclusion, that whatever we call ourselves has no reality to it because it's constantly changing. So, in fact, to in fact realize that, I often say this to my Buddhist friend, to, rather than simply accepting an atma, to actually realize the transience is one of the teachings of the Buddha, to recognize the transient. And as I was saying earlier, defining what is avidya, what is ignorance, Patanjali's description of ignorance is to take the transient for the eternal. So, anatma is actually something to be realized rather than just to be believed. <laughs> to see that I am extremely variable in whatever I call myself. And as I said, actually a great philosopher Hume, in fact, very much had come to this understanding. He was not quoting the Buddha, I can assure you. <laughs> something I said in the meditation, but I like to emphasize that again. Whatever I become aware of changes in its quality. So this is actually very important to understand that if I actually know myself more and more impartially, that the quality of myself will change. In fact, this is a very strong idea, especially in Plato, and very much emphasized in the Indian teaching, that self-knowing and self-being are not two things. It's a spiral. So the notion that if I now, the question here is this. Actually, in Christian context, Meister Eckhart, more than anybody else, very much emphasized this. That if I see something in me, if I don't like it, I want to change it. That is bound to come from my own egoistic wish to be a better guy, or to find place in heaven, or whatever. That it is actually coming from a level of being which is self-advancing. So he actually very much emphasizes to be, can I sit there just watching without any desire, without any aim, just watching the way it is. Because the suggestion, now speaking slightly more technically, if you like, Awareness comes from a level of consciousness which is at least a little higher than the functions in my body. For example, my mind is working, my body is working. That their level of consciousness can be quite ordinary. But if I remain aware at least during that time, which may be only a few seconds, during that time I'm connected with a level of consciousness which is a little higher than my, the level of my mind and body. Therefore, the possibility of change. 
this is a very important idea. In fact, Einstein speaks about this in a very different physics context. He said a problem cannot be solved at the same level at which it originates. So the transformation of my consciousness, whatever level it is, cannot come about from the same level at which that level now is. Can I temporarily be connected with a slightly different level? That requires a level of awareness, staying with it, even suffering the fact that that's what I am. Supposing I see that I'm just full of myself, selfish, completely greedy, if I can suffer the fact that that's what I am and stay with it, I can guarantee a little shift takes place. But remember, we have lots of other forces. We may again become even greedier than I now am because of many other forces are playing on it. But partly this is one of the suggestions in any serious spiritual search to, in a way, protect oneself from innumerable influences that go on and on and on. In fact, as I had earlier said, that the whole undertaking of self-study is a dangerous affair. The reason for that is there are two usual consequences. One is despair. If one honestly begins to see and not just try to fantasize, one would see all of these devilish things in oneself. Whatever the Buddha encountered or Christ encountered, that also exists in me. And that can lead to despair. Which is the reason why in none of the monasteries, whether it's Buddhist monasteries or Christian monasteries, the monks are never encouraged to be solitary monks. Because as it is said, the solitary monks are much more troubled by the devil. What is most helpful for any serious searcher is to find a community of searchers. Then one begins to see that what is true for me deep down is true for the others also. In fact, initially self-knowledge can be what my name is, what my father did, where I come from, but that's nothing to write home about. If one begins to be serious about it, self-knowledge is even then a wrong expression. It actually becomes the knowledge of the human condition. And then one is not taking it so personally. We have a very interesting remark of St. Paul, actually. He says, our struggle is not only with other human beings, but it is with great forces. There is wickedness in high places. This is the direct quote from St. Paul. <laughs> there is wickedness in high places. Hmm? Because these are large forces, not only in me. In fact, the very fact our existence requires forces of protection and that usually means, you can see this every parent, and you don't need to take my word for it, somehow encourages their kid to do well in school, to do better than the other guys, so that he can get a scholarship or he can go to a better school or a better college. You see, we encourage all this. Survival requires doing better than the others. Whether it's getting, whether it's terms of more prestige or more money or more degrees or whatever. In fact, here I should, a 
if you don't mind giving a very personal example, this was in 2001, the International Theosophical Society had invited me to give a talk in Sydney, Australia for one hour. It took me two days to get there and two days to get back. <laughs> I always think this is so crazy. And also Samdhan Rinpoche, who some of you would know his name, he was the Prime Minister of the Tibetan government in exile for eight years. Now he's retired from that position. And he was also director of the Institute for in Sarnath, Tibetan studies. Highly regarded man. He was another person who was invited. So after our talks, we were expected to have a, a kind of a, like a panel discussion. And so he was very much emphasizing this need for freedom from the ego. And freedom from the ego, I was trying to point out, doesn't mean to be against the ego. Ego has its place. And then I actually said to him that if I had not done a PhD and had not written some of these books, do you think they would have invited me here? And also that if you were not the prime minister, of the, <laughs> they would have invited you. And, but it created a stunned silence. After that, he and I became very good friends, actually, I should tell you. <laughs> but I, I say this partly because we can't be free of anything by being against it. I, I make this remark quite seriously. If I wish to be free of my egocentricism, ego is actually, as I said, the word simply means the self. But even at the lowest level, if I wish to be free of that, I need to see its place. In fact, I need to study this with a great affection to see what role it plays in my life and why is it so occupying me. And that awareness, impartial awareness, brings about a change by itself. And otherwise, if I become against it, that means I have to come down to the same level. Then occasionally I might even succeed temporarily, but one doesn't actually get free of this at all. In this context, I should maybe make, tell you a remark. This is a remark of my own teacher, Madame de Salzburg. She was the, I suppose, really head of the Gurdjieff teaching after Gurdjieff's death. I worked with her very closely for almost 10 years. She said, ego is a good servant, but a bad master. Who needs a servant who just wants to lie around doing nothing? I personally don't know anybody who actually could attend to anything, you call it spiritual or even good works, unless they are a little bit free of their own concern about where their next lunch is going to come from. But to come to that kind of little freedom requires a certain action of the ego, if you like. So ego is a good servant, but then if it begins to leave all the decisions in the household, then that can be a problem. So don't be against, in fact, don't be against anything. One can never be free of it by being against it. But to watch it, to see this in oneself impartially, what role is it playing? And why am I giving in to this? Then I am suggesting to you, the longer one can impartially watch it, which simply means 
an awareness coming from a level which is a slightly higher level than where the ego actually works, then it can actually have a transforming effect. But at the same, if I'm against it, I come down to the same level. Then occasionally one succeeds. Same thing about, for example, the suggestion to quieten your mind. If I am coming down to the same level of the mind and fighting with it, occasionally one can succeed for a moment or two. Otherwise, I can slightly impartially watch the shenanigans of my mind. Then one can sometimes find a quiet descending. This is actually an important principle to keep in mind that awareness is the mechanism of transformation. This is actually a universal idea and it's really first of all simply requires us recognizing that there are many levels of reality that I'm not running the whole universe. Many levels of reality. And one of the Upanishads, let me quote it directly. This is, if you're interested, the Shwetashwetar Upanishad. This was the name of a great sage after whom the Upanishad is named. This is what he said. All human realization is a combination of, if you don't mind my using the two Sanskrit words, combination of tapas prabhav, which means the human effort, and deva prasad, benediction of the devas. All human realization is a combination of these two. And you can read really whenever any of our great discoverers or scientists or even great poets have described. They don't always describe how they came to something. But here maybe I'd quote to you from Einstein that might interest you. He was periodically asked, is creativity First of all, nobody denies that he was very creative, right? <laughs> is creativity a matter of chance? They said, not grace, because that sounds too religious. So they use the word chance. Is this a matter of chance, or is it a matter of hard work? And his response was that ultimately it is a matter of chance, but chance seems to favor the prepared. <laughs> this is the important thing. But this idea is very common. For example, Krishnamurti in modern times actually very often said, you cannot ascend to the truth, but the truth can descend on you. And in fact, my question often used to be with him, should I just go and have another beer and let the truth descend on me, or do I have to do something for the truth to descend on me? <laughs> but sometimes that gets very much extremely one-sided. Some of you may know, every Protestant should know, Martin Luther, for example, used to say that ultimately everything is a matter of grace. Hmm? Doesn't matter what you do. In fact, then he said something which people don't repeat in the churches. Therefore, sin bravely. I'm quoting him. Take my word for it. <laughs> sin bravely. He said that specially because he was about to marry the nun Kate. Do you probably all, do you know that he married the nun, Kate? And before that he made this remark, therefore sin bravely. It doesn't matter what you do. And ironically, what has actually happened in most Protestant countries, a lot of emphasis on doing good works. 
in fact, much more so than in other traditions, uh, which is just the reverse of really what he was teaching. He was very much emphasizing, it's all a matter of grace, that the Holy Spirit cannot be forced by anything that you do. It's entirely up to it. So, I think the notion of grace, grace meaning something coming from, or Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita also says, you need to act whatever action is required, but whether it succeeds or does not succeed, it depends on many factors. And one of the factors he mentions is, is called devam, which sometimes gets translated as fate or destiny, but it literally means the benediction of the devas. Thank you very much for inviting me and for putting up with what I have to say. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.